Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being at Grace Crossing Church this morning. I stand before you today um, with a heart that is a bit overwhelmed by the events that have transpired in our country in the past few days, beginning in Louisiana and then in Minnesota and then followed on in Dallas, Texas. I had my message prepared this morning, but I felt that I needed to bring to us uh, a response from God's Word as to the way that our hearts should be responding and the way that we should be reacting to the things that we have just seen. Once more, tensions have escalated over racial inequality and over police force that has been called into question and that has been thrust into the national conversation. Truth is, there are no easy answers and there are no simple explanations for the racially charged violence that we have seen over the last number of days here in America. But these recent flashpoints, I think, tell us once more that America is still embroiled in racism. And we still need God in America once again. Now, in our audience this morning, there are diverse opinions about this issue. There are diverse opinions about who is to blame, who is at fault, or what is the problem. But I hope that we can all agree today on these things. I hope that we can agree that this issue is a complex and a complicated issue. I hope that we can agree that we have a systemic problem, but we also have a spiritual problem. That what we have seen is not a skin issue. At its core, it is a soul issue. The problem of racism is not about the color of a skin. It is much more about the condition and the content of the human heart. And so what do we do? How do we respond? What does God's word and how does God's word direct us as followers of Jesus to respond to what we have seen? Listen, Jesus spoke into these issues. It is not coincidental that we're in the series that we are in overwhelmed. It is not coincidental that we are coming to the passages of Scripture that we had laid out weeks and weeks ago that we're going to deal with this morning that fall right in line with what we're talking about today. But before we move into that, I want us to respond the way God's word would teach us to respond. First of all, I think we should pray that peace will prevail and that justice will be served. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, 
will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I believe that God will still make good on that promise. If we will take God at his word and we will do what God has called his people to do, to pray, to pray for peace, to pray that justice will be served. I believe God will respond. Secondly, I think that we should empathize with those who have been misaligned, those who have been marginalized, and those who have been mistreated. I think that is the essence of God's heart in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, which we talked about a few weeks ago, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thirdly, our biblical response. I think that all of us should seek to act in a way that is spiritually centered and not politically correct. There's a conversation that's being had today that is in many ways minimizing the core issues, the real heart issues. We are not going to fix the problems of our world and the problems of racism through the political system and through policies and procedures alone. The answer lies in God and in God's word. Here's what Colossians tells us, Colossians chapter 3. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Through Jesus Christ, the playing field is leveled. We are one. And God wants us to think as one. And we do that by recognizing who he has made us, that he has changed and transformed every one of us in the unique diversity that sits in this congregation week in and week out. The reality is we are together one in Jesus Christ. No one is better than another. And here's the final response I think that's biblical and that's appropriate. We should seek to stand on the side of justice, mercy, and humility at all times and at all costs. We should seek to do what we've talked about here, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. My prayer is that God will help us as his church and as his people to take on a posture that is both Christ-honoring and biblically-centered, one that allows us to move forward into this conversation in a way that brings grace mixed with truth, and we need both. And we need God's wisdom and God's help. But this morning, what is most appropriate, I believe, is that we pray for families today on this Sunday morning
who are grieving the loss, the senseless, violent loss of their loved ones. One young man, African-American, Louisiana, one in Minnesota, that has obviously taken over the national spotlight, just one of many, I'm sure. And then these police officers in Dallas that were ambushed and targeted and ruthlessly killed, fallen first responders, protecting the rights of peaceful protesters in Dallas doing their job. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for a moment of silence as we together join our hearts in prayer. And then in just a moment, I've asked Life Anderson to come and to lead us in prayer that God would shed his grace upon our country and God would help us to respond in a way that honors him. Let's take a moment of silence for those who've lost their lives and families that are grieving today. I want to read a quote from Martin Luther King, Jr. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Father God, this is an issue that has been with us for a long time. And we need you. I thank you for the words you gave Gil, the words from your Bible that we need right now. We need your Holy Spirit to come in such a powerful way, a powerful way in the families that have lost loved ones, a powerful way to examine ourselves and where we are in this area, Lord, a powerful way to give us wisdom and discernment to not only pray, to de- but to de- know what to do and how to act. Help us as a nation, help us as a church, and help us individually. God, we love you, and we want your love to move forward more than anything. Mm -hmm. And you love everyone that's involved in this, Father. Give us your love that will drive out hate. Give us your love, Lord God, that will bring healing as Second Chronicles has said, humble us, guide us. Help us to be learners. Help us to be teachable. Yes. We need you, Lord. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, life. You may be seated. So as we come this morning to week number six of our series, Overwhelmed, Let me add the historical context and framework to the cultural 
context that we've just focused on. Jesus was born at a time and into a place that was notorious for racial inequality and injustice. When Jesus was born, he was born into a culture and into a people, into an ethnicity that was under the rule of a hostile power known as the Roman government. They ruled Palestine with an iron fist. Many people, Jewish people, including Jesus and his family, were subject to mistreatment because, largely because of their ethnicity. And so Jesus, as he speaks the Sermon on the Mount, he gives it in the context and in the framework of a lot of racial tension. Many people thought when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, it was the beginning of a movement that he was beginning to bring a revolt against the Roman government, to overthrow the Roman government, to place Israel back in a place of power and prominence. And Jesus seemingly does the very opposite. Listen to what I'm about to say. No one understood racism like Jesus did. And no one knew how to address it or could address it like Jesus could. And that's exactly what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. So often we read these principles, we read these ideas, and because they're not in a framework, we simply think of them and we dismiss them as not significant to speaking into the issues of our world. But as we come to our passages of Scripture today and to this particular section, what we're going to find is that Jesus really has a voice. He has something to say to every one of us who experienced the chaos of what's happening in our world today. There are three principles that I want to offer us today, beginning with the very first thing Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 when he turns a corner and he begins to compare what they've learned to what God says. Here's what he says, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You are familiar with the command of the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. The teachers of the law had reduced the sixth commandment to the physical act of murder. And in their minds, as long as they didn't take another life physically, they were off the hook. It didn't matter what they did emotionally. It didn't make a difference what they did psychologically to other people. It didn't make a difference how they treated them. As long as they didn't lift their hand and murder someone else, they were, they believed in God's eyes, right and justified. And Jesus comes to them and here's what he says. I know what you've been taught. I know what you've heard, but your interpretation misses the mark of what it is God is intending. Here's what he's suggesting, and here's the first principle. Anger does to our relationship with God what murder does to human relationships. Anger does to our relationship with God what murder does 
to our human relationships. Here's what Jesus is saying. Murder is not an act of the hand alone. Murder is an activity of the human heart. It is not simply an emotion. It is a spiritual condition. And whenever people harbor unresolved anger like we saw in Dallas, things get broken, people get broken, relationships get severed. That's just the reality. And what Jesus is suggesting is this. Not only does anger destroy us and destroy relationships physically and emotionally, it destroys people relationally and it destroys people spiritually. And that's why anger cannot be allowed to be harbored within the human heart. Because it's not simply about a physical act of murder. It is about what we do with how we feel and how we treat other individuals. What we've seen these last number of days has really been the outpouring of -of out-of-control human anger. I know the debate of gun control, but guns do not murder people. Anger and hatred murders people. And Jesus raises the bar, and he says, listen, it is not enough for you just not to commit the act of murder. You've got to be careful you don't take that one step further. He adds to that this in verse number 38. He says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus here is addressing the oldest law in the books, literally. It's the oldest law. Dating back all the way to 2285 B.C., during the reign of the Babylonian Empire, this particular law was on the books. Every civilization lived by some kind of mirror justice. In other words, make sure that the punishment mirrors and fits the crime. What was the purpose? It really was to take out of the hands of individuals vigilante justice so that people simply don't go at things on their own. There needed to be some kind of framework, some kind of standard, some kind of law. And so Jesus says, you've heard this said, but this is where things get a little interesting. He says in verse number 39, but I say to you, Do not resist an evil person. I'm not sure we read that correctly. Maybe we've missed something here. Let's let's reread this again just in case we didn't get the essence of what Jesus is saying. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Could Jesus have meant that? Could he have been serious about that? Well, if you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the way he responded, I think it is, it is hard to argue that Jesus was not a relative pacifist when it came to acts of violence and to defending himself. And here's what's so interesting about this. Is this word resist, and this is the, the crux of this verse, 
is from the first century Greek culture, and it really meant an armed resistance of a hostile force. Here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, do not violently resist or vengefully get even with your enemies, with those who are evil, those who mistreat you. Martin Luther King Jr. made a statement that I think is profound, and it really tags right on to what life shared this morning. He said, the old law of an eye for an eye leaves both people blind. I think that's really what Jesus is saying. If you take matters into your own hands, if you try to to, to execute this kind of old law, which was not God's intent, and you take it further than what was intended, it's going to leave both of you blind and both of you toothless. And so what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you, do not resist. Do not violently resist and do not vengefully retaliate against those who are evil. Can I tell you that I believe that one of the greatest barometers of our trust in God is how we respond when we're mistreated. It's one of the greatest ways that we can evaluate and determine how much we trust in God. And it brings us to a second principle that I think Jesus is giving us. Here it is. When tempted to seek revenge, seek reconciliation instead. When tempted to seek revenge, seek reconciliation instead. Jesus gives three really powerful illustrations of how this lives itself out. Here's what he says in verse number 39. He goes on. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in this auditorium have at some point in your life been slapped across the face? Can I see your hand? It is one of the most embarrassing, most humiliating, most offensive ways to be treated. I can't think of many things that are worse than being slapped across the face, and neither, neither could the Jews and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So among the laws that were given by God, they added hundreds of other laws that were oral laws. And one of those, this idea of the law of retribution or retaliation, here's how it was, here's how it was tempered. If you felt that you were slapped across the cheek and it was unjustifiable, you had every right to slap back. But Jesus says, that's not the way of those who follow me. Here's what Jesus is suggesting. Jesus is suggesting, you don't have to turn the other cheek, but you can. You can. He gives us a second illustration. In in verse number 40, he says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, with our wardrobes today, that means very little to us, right? We have plenty of shirts, plenty of coats. If somebody wants to sue me for my wardrobe, have at it, right? We'll go buy a new one. But that was not the case. That was not the case to most Jewish people. A Jewish male had in their wardrobe several what are called tunics, shirts, undershirts, but often they only had one cloak, one coat. 
that coat was not just to be a covering to keep them safe from the elements and the weather, but it was also doubled as a blanket at night to keep them warm. Many times Jewish males would actually sleep with their blanket. And so when they were taken to court, here was what the law said. You can sue them for their shirt, but you can't sue them for their coat. It's theirs to keep. And watch what Jesus does. Jesus said, listen, if you have a transaction that goes south and something doesn't go well and somebody gets an attorney and brings a lawsuit against you and they want all of your designer shirts, give them your members only coat too. Hand it over to them. Why? Because you're showing them the way that my people should respond when mistreated. And then he adds this final, really difficult one, verse 41. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Interesting history to this. Whenever the Roman Empire would take over a particular town, they would place right at the gate a a Roman yoke. And, And that yoke was used to symbolize that everyone there was now enslaved to the Roman government. They owed their allegiance to the Roman government. In fact, the leaders of the town, the leaders of the city, the leaders of the village were forced to walk under the Roman yoke as a sign of giving their allegiance to the Roman government. From that day forward, anytime a Roman soldier or an officer, an official in the government, decided that they wanted you to do an errand for them or they wanted you to carry their gear, they could demand that you do it and you were forced to do it, no questions asked. You had to drop everything you were doing and you had to respond to them, except for one caveat. The law stipulated that you were never forced to do it more than a mile. So you know what many Jewish people did? They staked off a one-mile distance from their home down different roads. They knew exactly where the one mile started and where the one mile stopped. So here's what Jesus is saying. You're home at night. It's been a long day. You're having dinner with your family, and there's a knock at the door. A Roman soldier carrying his gear demands that you come out And you take his gear and you carry it. Here's what Jesus is suggesting. Don't complain. Don't argue. Don't pout. Don't sulk. Get up and pick up the gear and carry it not just one mile, but carry it two. Why? Because you now are showing your distinction between every other person and those that are followers of Jesus. Let me tell you the point of every one of these illustrations. Jesus is saying this, when you are offended, you don't have to take it, but you can. Through my power, you can. When you are asked to give, and you feel that you have given enough, you don't have to give more, but you can. You can through my power. He's saying when you feel like you are being forced to go above and beyond what is required, above and beyond the call of duty, and you don't have to do any more, You don't have to, but you can. You get to. And Jesus summarizes all of this when he says this in verses 43 through 45. You have heard the law that says love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to 
to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Listen. It is not easy to pray for those who persecute you. And it is not logical to love those who hate you. And yet Jesus asks us to do both. He tells us, I want you to pray and I want you to love because in those ways you are going to become distinguished. Everyone around you is going to see your response and they're going to say, wow, there is something different about the way this fellow is responding to the way they're being treated. I mean, let's be honest. When you are mistreated, what is our natural tendency? Not just to get angry, but to get even. To settle the score, to make sure that we have the last blow, to make sure that whatever that person has coming to them, they are going to receive. And so the question is, why does Jesus tell us to pray, and why does Jesus tell us to love? Here's why. It is hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. If you don't think that's true, try it this week. Try taking someone that you think is an enemy and literally commit yourself throughout this week to praying God's favor, God's blessing, God's goodness on them, and I promise you in your heart, something is going to change. You will not be able to think of them as you once did. If we would simply take that imperative seriously, it would be a game changer for everything about our lives. So he says, I want you to pray because when you pray, listen, I change your heart. But secondly, I want you to love your enemies. Now here was the problem with the Jews. They had played spiritual semantics with the word neighbor. Love your neighbor. In their mind, the neighbor was defined as those people who are the same ethnicity. Those that looked just like them. And listen, we know we've got to love those who are of our nationality, those who look like us, those who think like us, those whose culture is like us. But Jesus said that's not enough. I want you to expand this idea of neighbor beyond just simply those who look like you. I want you to recognize that your neighbor is everyone who has a need. Everyone who is hurting. Every person who is marginalized becomes your neighbor. He says, I want you to love. Because loving does something really profound. He goes on to say this in verses 46 through 48. If you love only those who love you, what reward is that? Is there for that? Even tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Someone has said, evil for good is evil. Good for good is human. But good for evil 
is divine. It looks like God. It is something that makes us different. And you say this morning, how can we do this? This is humanly impossible. And that's the point. God does not expect us to do this through our own natural abilities. He expects us to do this through supernatural enablement that comes by his Holy Spirit. Only as we are fully surrendered to God and fully obedient to God can we live out this life that he expects us to live. And it changes everything. I like the way Ephesians says it, and we'll close the talk with this. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let me leave you this morning with this thought. We look the most like God when we love those who look least like God. We look most like God when we love those who look and act least like God. And what God asks of us in the Sermon on the Mount is that we have a holy, heartfelt response to the ways of mistreatment that don't just come to us personally, but come to our world, come to our community, that we respond in a way that brings honor to God. Every one of us can apply what we've talked about this morning. Every single one of us here deal with anger over issues and being mistreated. Every single one of us feel the tendency to want to get even. Every one of us, at times, want to love people who are like us, but we don't necessarily love those who aren't like us. Here's this final principle this morning. When it comes to life, prayer always works and love always wins. Prayer always works and love always wins. Jesus, we need you today. We need you that we would have a holy response to issues in our own life, and every one of us here have issues that we're dealing with, um, feelings that we harbor in our hearts that we know are not right, attitudes of anger and resentment and at times vengeance, wanting to get even. We bring all of those things to you today, God, and we pray that you'll give us a supernatural response and a supernatural enablement to how our tendency is to react. May we, Lord, have a holy reaction to those actions that are done against us. We ask you to help us, Lord, because we recognize today that we cannot become the people of God and we cannot imitate God without your help. We can't look like you. But I believe it is the greatest litmus test of whether or not we are seriously followers of Jesus. How do we react to mistreatment? Help us to do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you and that brings good and blessing to others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.